National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. Education emerged as a key factor in Virginia's gubernatorial election where concerned parents pushed back against curriculum content and school policies on COVID-19. Some say these parents are a part of a broader movement for change in the educational landscape. Are we witnessing a reawakening among parents to their rights and responsibilities for the education of their children? We'll find out. Patrick Riley, president of the Cardinal Nanu- Patrick Riley, president of the Cardinal Newman Society, is no stranger to the role parents should play in education or in keeping school curricula on target. He joins us today on Register Radio. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Editor-in-Chief of the National Catholic Register and your host on Register Radio. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host Matthew Bunsen, Executive Editor of EWTN News. You know, this month is also the month of November, not just of elections, <laughs> um, but November is a time of reflection on the saints and all souls. In November, we pray for the dead, and we also reflect on where we are headed when our souls depart this earth. Are we going to be saints? Uh, the church invites us to make heaven, hell, death, and judgment a part of our reflections. And in our second part of the show, we will talk to John Grindelsky, a registered columnist, about the four last things. But first, Let's turn to education news. So the Register's been following this movement, um, uh, at least a movement we think we see uh, on parental involvement. Um, It seems like there's been a big push. Uh, There's homeschooling that's on the rise, more classical education opportunities, especially even among Catholic schools. And then there's the example like the Virginia one, uh, where parents have taken to political action Uh, to gain stronger input into uh, their schools. And to me, it seems like there's uh, something good going on here. And our audience at ncregister.com seems to think so too, because among our top 20 articles this past week, education has been the biggest theme. Um, And and some of it's good news and some of it's bad news. Uh, Patrick Riley wrote uh, one of those articles, and he was focusing on a problematic situation at Loyola Marymount. Uh, Patrick's the founder and president of the Cardinal Newman Society, and he joins us now. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Jeanette. Thank you for having me. Well, that was really long-winded, but there's a lot to talk about in mm-hmm. education, and um, I'm, I'm very excited to have you on. Uh, you've been following this. The mission of the Cardinal Newman Society is precisely to equip parents and, and students, especially in higher education, and in defending Catholic education and, and Catholic identity. And so, I guess my first question is, do you see a positive movement in education? Uh, Maybe uh, some signs of hope? Uh, Absolutely. Yes, I I think education is the hopeful thing in our society right now. I mean, you look at (laughs) politics, you look at art, you look at entertainment, you look at pretty much at even the family, right? And you see a lot of bad news. But in education, uh, good things are happening. And I think that's good for all of that, because education is the opportunity to form the next generation, and that's our way out of all of these problems. So I think it's very hopeful. You know, with any problem, uh, how do you bring about change? You have to identify the problem and and know it Mm -hmm. and understand it, and then you have to actually enact the change. And I think what we're seeing in Virginia and in, and in politics is a recognition of the real serious problems 
in public education. Yeah. And even in, in much of Catholic education over the last 50 years. But at the same time, we're also seeing great movement forward in many of our Catholic schools and in many of the dioceses and colleges. So so it's it's hopeful, yes. That's great. I, I, you know, sometimes you see what you want to see, and I've been hopeful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the areas, I guess, of uh, where it's problematic, a story that we've run this week, it's about a, a walkout at a San Francisco school, Catholic school, and, and these students walked out of a pro-life assembly. So, the school, Archbishop Riordan High School, um, has featured a pro-life speaker, um, and apparently, according to local media, only a few dozen of 800 students actually stayed in the auditorium for the presentation. This is a is an extremely sad situation where the students themselves were walking out, right? And and the school right. seems to defend mm-hmm. their Catholic identity. Uh, but the the student body is not. What happens in a place like this? How how have we come to this? Well, uh, you know, we have to realize in Catholic education that we are up against everything. Uh, the minute the students leave the school, they are faced with every cultural influence, every thing in entertainment and the news, every social influence is against what the church is is pushing in terms of the culture of life and on sexuality and marriage and all of these issues. And so, it, even within the schools, you know, you can have a very good faithful school, but the peer influence can be very bad. And and that seems to be what happened here. You know, it seemed to be the cool thing to, to gin up a walkout on the pro-life speaker. Uh, it, this was a an all, I believe it was an all-guys school that just last year trans uh, became co-ed. Right. And so, this was probably you know, spurred by some of the new girls in the school. And so, you know, in Catholic education, we have to realize that we're talking about a formation that's against what the culture is pressing for. And so all the more reason to be very deliberate, very direct, very clear in forming young people and not shying away from the the tough issues. And I think in cases like this is also making sure the parents are on board so they can be partners in that whole Mm -hmm. process. I think that's hugely important. And, um, you know, speaking of Catholic identity, again, in a problem, you wrote about Loyola Marymount in Los Angeles. Uh, What happened there? Yeah, well, so here's an example of 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 so-called Catholic educators just completely getting it wrong in allowing a fundraiser for Planned Parenthood to occur on the campus. Now, the university officials said, well, we have nothing to do with this. This is just, this has, the university has no sponsorship. Well, it was a club, the student club that's recognized by the university. It was advertised through the university. It was held in a university uh, campus facility. The university said, this is fine. We can raise money. They raised 4000 over $4,000 for Planned Parenthood, which is one of the largest abortion businesses in the United States. And there's absolutely no excuse for this sort of thing happening at a Catholic institution. This is one of the topics, this is one of the articles that has done very well, Patrick, at uh, mm-hmm. the, the register. Um, you know, many people were interested to know what was happening there. Um, how, I mean, how have people responded? Uh, what, what have you followed in terms of the response to this problem at Loyola? Well, people are just shocked. And and that says a lot, given what's happened over the last 50 years. It doesn't seem to be much that would shock us anymore. But this is just <laughs> a, a, even a step beyond, right? And it's, 
you, you can't even begin to try to uh, defend this under academic freedom or on anything else except for uh, some kind of notion of absolute freedom, that uh, absolute liberty, really, that that young people and faculty and anybody on our campus can say and do and advocate anything, and we're going to to say that this is perfectly fine. And everyone knows, especially any good Catholic parent knows, that that is not how you form young people. These are young adults. The purpose of an education is to form them as uh, clear-thinking, uh, well-behaved people. And and beyond that, Catholic education should be aiming for sainthood. Right. And this is hardly the way that you're going to lead young people to sainthood. This is this is only leading them to hell. Right. You know, I mean, just on that point, I can't help but jump in. I know Matthew has something he wants to bring up, but um, we have this piece at the Register. It was an interview with Mary Frances Myler at Notre Dame. She's the editor-in-chief of their independent newspaper called The Irish Rover. And here's a beautiful example of a student stepping in um, and, and really pushing Catholic identity at a school that has, in many ways, lost it. Uh, it's a beautiful read. It's called Identity Crisis at Notre Dame. Irish Rover editor talks about confusion, Catholicism at the university. But Matthew, I want you to have the last word here. Jump on in. Well, this is uh, actually a, a good thing. This is a bit of good news. Uh, I know that uh, we've reported at the Register about um, on the campus of Texas A&M, the, the first Eucharistic procession, there are 700 students who came out to adore our Lord. And, and here we are in the middle of trying to spark a, a Eucharistic revival across the country that can also spark an academic revival. But uh, this is certainly good news. So your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I'm very excited by it. And it's, it's very exciting to see the, the improvement of, of the various Catholic ministries at universities and colleges around the country. And Texas A&M is, is, is one that's really just stellar in, in everything that they've done there. Um, I hope that it's also spurring along a greater appreciation for a genuine Catholic education. Um, the only problem with this is that these students are getting a great experience at the campus ministry and engaging in, in wonderful Catholic activity, and then they're going back to a campus and, and classrooms that that are directly opposed to what what our faith teaches us. And, and that's happening increasingly. It's getting worse and worse at many of the secular institutions. And this is why we need to rebuild faithful Catholic education that brings the truth of God, the truth of our faith, into every classroom, into everything that young people do, that's a genuine, true education. Right. And, you know, I, I think um, especially at, at Texas A&M, the chaplain there just made the point that this needs to be the first of many of these kind of encounters. And they wanted to have on hand people who could uh, answer questions so that it wasn't simply the wonderful and beautiful act of adoring our Lord, but that it also um, had it, uh, with it uh, some answers and a support group. But I can't agree with you more, Patrick, about the need uh, for that continuous formation of our of our children, uh, so that they can um, really be able to respond uh, to the challenges of this world. And if we don't give that to them from a very young age, we 
are in real trouble. Um, and so I appreciate the work that you're doing. And I guess I I just want to give you a chance to kind of plug what you're doing at the Cardinal Newman Society, direct us to your website, and just tell us about uh, the good things you're watching out for. Yeah, because as I said, there, there really are a lot of great things happening, and Catholic education is really getting its act together uh, in many places, aside from these problems that we mentioned. Um, if you go to our website, newmansociety.org, we've been developing a lot of standards for Catholic education that are being embraced by many dioceses around the country, um, uh, working with some very faithful Catholic colleges. So newmansociety.org is where you can find all, all that information. Well, Patrick, we always invite you to bring uh, the important topics to us at ncregister.com through your column there. And we invite our listeners to stay tuned. When we come back, Matthew and I will focus on death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Those four things that the church in her wisdom asks us to remember every November. This is Register Radio on EWTN. Stay tuned for more. Archbishop Cordelione talks about the National Catholic Register. The Register's content is so critically important in the society we're living in now. There's an absence of the practice of religion in public life. So all the more important is it for people to be reading the Register so that they can acquire more understanding of our Catholic faith. I've appreciated the catechetical benefits of the content of the Register. It presents very clear Catholic teaching in a way that is easily digestible. To get six free issues, order online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. Call or click today. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Editor-in-Chief of the National Catholic Register, and I'm joined by my co-host, Matthew Bunsen, Executive Editor for EWTN News. It's November, and with that brings a specific seasonal focus for us as Catholics. We focus on death, just as the season, you know, seems to change and everything's kind of dying around us in nature. The church has us thinking about death and praying for the dead. It's an extremely important reflection. And at the register, we have often relied on a specific columnist to bring us this subject. And that is John Grandowski. He's been a register columnist for a very long time, and he was formerly a Associate Dean of the School of Theology at Seton Hall University in New Jersey. He has a special interest in moral theology and the thought of John Paul II. And I'm curious to find out why John also has a significant number of columns on the topic of death and the four last things. Uh, John, welcome to Register Radio. And I think the first thing I want to know is, how have you become our specialist on the theology of the end? Well, I'm not sure how I've become your specific <laughs> specialist in this area. I'll tell you that... Uh, about eight or nine years ago when I uh, took my kids to the beach in New Jersey for the summer, 
Uh, I happened to pick up the Star Ledger, which is the main newspaper in New Jersey, and they had a uh, big piece in their uh, living section about how cremation was be was fast overtaking burial as the way that most people were ending their lives and, and, and being disposed of after death. And it always struck me as strange that that was a phenomenon. Mm -hmm. I began writing about that for, uh, for the register and obviously the connection with November is traditionally the month that the church prays for the deceased. Uh, provided an opportunity to address that. And uh, in the course of that discussion, uh, it expanded out, I would say, to, you know, traditional eschatology. Right. I think in addition to that, also, you know, we've been through a pandemic and the uh, Centers for Disease Control tally about 750,000 deaths that they attribute to uh, to COVID, and the fact of the matter is, is that if we're looking at three quarter of a million of our fellow citizens having died in the past year and a half, and yet we as a society increasingly don't ha don't talk about death, right. uh, we don't have a, a common perception of death, and and maybe we shouldn't as as a society, but somebody's got to be talking about that, and that certainly I think is the role of the church. Absolutely. I think that's very, very important. I, I remember a piece that was written by Joseph Bottom uh, back many years ago for First Things, and he was talking about uh, this very thing that you say, is that the society just wants to avoid talk of death, and, and we actually... We end up talking about, um, you know, uh, a lot of different things at funerals, but not uh, necessarily some of the most important things. And he was making a comment about New Orleans, which is where I live, where I'm from, about our above-ground um, cemeteries, you know, the way uh, the cemeteries are actually right as you drive within, into the city. There are just rows and rows of, of these uh, cemeteries, and, and it's, uh, anyway, why, why we build them that way is a matter of, uh, of flood water, but... <laughs> Um, but anyway, he said that that was a reminder of death and, and a pertinent one, a good one. John, what is it that we really should be remembering when we go to a cemetery? Uh, what is it that the church is asking us to remember during a month like this one, November? Well, I think what the church is asking us to remember is that we are all in the work of salvation together and that the church is not just simply the group of people who get together at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings for Mass and a subsequent donut, but that uh, there is a community that stretches back in time, uh, those from whom we have inherited the faith, uh, as well as stretching forward in time, those to whom we will pass on the faith, our children, our grandchildren, etc., uh, once upon a time, as I've noted, as I noted, uh, it, when people went to church and cemeteries were near the church, we, you know, you imagine the quintessential English uh, parish yard where uh, you have to actually walk through the cemetery in order to get to the church door. Uh, you come to realize that the parish community is not just a here and now thing, that it extends backward, uh, and that these these people need our help. Now, it's probably something that, you know, English Protestants didn't appreciate because of their <laughs> rejection of the idea of prayer. 
for the dead, but certainly we as, as Catholics are aware of the fact that it is through our common charity that those who have gone before us, marked with the sign of faith, need our prayers in order to, to reach their heavenly perfection. Yeah, John, uh, one of the uh, things that you mentioned was the, the impact of the pandemic, and we saw what seemed to be uh, a real obsession on the part of people with catching COVID, which was completely understandable. But there seemed also to be a, a kind of a failure to recognize uh, the bigger issues of life and death and judgment and, and heaven and all of that in terms of eschatology. Where we are in terms of a secular country now, uh, how does that play into our wider understanding of the four last things? And how did that play out with COVID? Well, I think it, it fits in a variety of ways. I mean, if we look at the contemporary obsession with stamping out every possible incidence of COVID and uh, triple, quadruple, quintuple, vaccinating ourselves and wearing masks whenever we come into contact uh, with intent foot of another person. It means that our society, which doesn't have any agreement as to what follows, has basically fixated on physical existence, even to the point where some people would arguably say they're truncating people's rights and people's liberties in that process. But I think the church has also been negligent in this area. Uh, we went through COVID. Now, granted that uh, many churches were closed for a long time, but by this time last year, there were already dioceses that were reopening doors, that people, the churches were already beginning to have Catholics come back to Sunday Mass. Uh, and this year, certainly many more dioceses have even waived their dispensations from the, from the Sunday Mass obligation. Uh, the opportunity is there to address these issues, and, and we're not talking about them. We're not addressing the fact that death is in the one reality we all will not avoid. Mm -hmm. And John, I think I want to draw you out a little bit on that. I, that's what this month is about, right? It's, it's part of our own personal reflection as Catholics to reflect on these four last things that the church has, has uh, directed our attention to, heaven and hell, death and judgment. How do we begin to do that? Do you have some recommendations um, in, a, in a world where we are unmoored uh, from what those things really mean? No one wants to talk about judgment. I mean, that's a terrible thing, right? <laughs> um, it, it's, it's, we, no one believes in hell anymore uh, in, many, in many places. So how do we even begin um, to reorient ourselves to what these things are? Well, I think first of all, we need to remove something of the invisibility of death. Part of the reasons I've criticized cremation, for example, is that when we traditionally buried people, death created a certain urgency. You buried people within three or four days after death, therefore you made uh, time to go to the wake, to the funeral parlor, you made time to go to the burial mass. Today, that exigency no longer exists. The fact of the matter is, is that wakes and funerals and memorial services are scheduled far more around the convenience of the mourners than they are around the uh, fact of, of the person's death. So the fact that 
you know, we, we restore some visibility to this area. How many kids, for example, have never seen a funeral? Mm -hmm. How many young people have never gone to a funeral parlor or to a wake? These were normal, ordinary social events in, in most Catholic communities. Uh, in the past, as I said, traditionally, people would pass through a cemetery on the way to church. When is the last time people have gone out to see the grave sites of, of their relatives? Um, are Do people consider the fact that in, they need to pray for the dead? When is the last time you went to the parish rectory and asked to arrange for a mass to be celebrated for right. someone? Uh, during November, there are very good spiritual writers. Uh, Alphonsus Liguri comes to mind with his uh, preparation for death. Uh, St. Francis de Sales on his considerations on the last things that all propose means and methods of, you know, considering one's own mortality and reincorporating that into their own spirituality. And as I said uh, in a number of columns, parishes want to form a community. Well, you know, if you've got three quarter of a million of Americans dead in theory, there might be somebody around you who is. Do we notice uh, those people who have lost a wife, a husband, a child, a, f a father? Uh, and, and of course, we notice them when the funeral is fresh and the death has occurred. Do we reach out after a month or two and find out how they're doing or maybe go out and, you know, take them out of the house or, you know, take the child to a, to a game or some other activity that, that might otherwise have been lost? Does the parish have, you know, some effort to work with people who are bereaved? All these are possibilities of ways of incorporating November spirituality. Yeah, they're wonderful examples, John, and I, I really do appreciate uh, you providing us those. And to keep it fresh before the Register's audience, I did take my children, very young children, to my grandfather's funeral last year. And we have been gotten gotten into the practice of saying after uh, before every meal, uh, the, the traditional prayer, eternal rest grant unto them, O Lord, and let your perpetual light shine upon them. May they rest in peace. There's no child too young to recite that, and I think it helps us to remember it. John, thank you so much for being with us. On that very point, I would encourage you to do it. I've taught my kids that prayer precisely in order for spiritual insurance policy. Absolutely. Very good point. Remember, for more news, analysis, and commentary, to check out the National Catholic Register online at ncregister.com. Thanks for joining us here on Register Radio and EWTN. For Matthew Bunton and our producer, Jeff Burson, I'm Jeanette DeMello. Until next week, God bless you. For more information about the National Catholic Register and about Register Radio, go to ncregister.com. Podcasts of Register Radio are posted on ncregister.com and on ewtn.com. Join us next week at this time for Register Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.